0: Corbynism, the post-mortem, is kindly sponsored by the Media Masters podcast, a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, hosted by Paul Blanchard. You can tune in any time at mediamasters.fm. And now, here's the show. This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's It's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. Following Ed Miliband's resignation after a bruising 2015 general election defeat, the Labour Party, led by interim leader Harriet Harman, launched a leadership election to replace him. The Parliamentary Labour Party, or PLP, having been transformed by more than 15 years in power under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's centre-left new Labour government, were now seen as out of ideas by the electorate. Following Labour's second successive defeat to David Cameron's one-nation, pro-austerity Conservative Party, Labour was searching to find its identity. Labour's far left, which had been a dormant force in the PLP since Neil Kinnock sidelined Tony Benn's wing of the party in the early 1980s, prepared their token candidate for the leadership election, with few expecting them to pass the threshold of nominations required to make the ballot. In the spirit of broadening the debate around policy, Labour members of Parliament lent their votes to the party's Bennite Socialist Campaign Group nomination for leader, Jeremy Corbyn MP. Jeremy Corbyn was a viral success, with the Stop the War Coalition chair riding a wave of popularity, particularly with a generation of young Brits that grew up in the shadow of the Iraq War and suffering from the impact of the 2008 financial crisis and successive years of austerity governance and declining public services. The Labour Party's new membership rules, enacted under Ed Miliband, allowed for a surge of new people joining the party to support Jeremy Corbyn's anti-austerity, anti-war brand of politics, and Corbyn won by a landslide. The Labour Party had found a new identity and a new, energised and heavily engaged membership, leaving the largely centre-left PLP little choice but to adjust to a new Corbynite political reality. Over the course of the next year, that political reality became more and more stark for sitting Labour politicians, as furious disagreements over foreign and domestic policy, ideology and his leadership of the party engulfed the PLP and eventually culminated in a no-confidence motion in his leadership. It was an ultimately futile act that resulted in the membership returning him to power with an increased majority, leaving Corbyn's sceptic MPs in disarray. Labour's civil war raged on throughout Corbyn's leadership, with Brexit, anti-Semitism, foreign policy, and his personal history of ethically questionable associations resulting in a series of disastrous and high-profile resignations and defections, which plagued the party until its crushing defeat last December. Hello and welcome to Corbynism: The Postmortem, Episode Two. I'm your host, Oz Katterjee, and joining me today, we have someone who lived through Labour's internal battle from the inside of the Parliamentary Labour Party, the former Labour MP for Redcar, Anna Turley. Hello, thanks for having me. So, first things first, can you talk to me about the early days of, of Corbynism?
1: Yeah, well, I think the very early days of Corbynism probably predate me by quite some time. Obviously, we know he'd been a, a Member of Parliament for 33 years. And I first got to know Jeremy when I was a local party activist in Islington North uh, between about 2009 and uh, 2012. 12. And we got on great. He was actually a lovely person. I remember my first uh, CRP event I kind of turned up to you know it's like you move to a new area and the Labour Party are your first family so I went along to a barbecue. Jeremy was utterly charming, lovely, grabbed me a plate of uh, fabulous sort of buffet from this uh, sort of community kitchen and was really nice and welcoming and um, I became the, the branch uh, organiser for F- uh, Finsbury Park which was Jeremy's branch and um, you know yeah we got, we got on very well. I had a lot of respect for him uh, as a local uh, constituency MP. Um, you know obviously we had very different views on many many things. I knew we were from different wings of the party but it didn't seem to matter then. Those things weren't weren't relevant. They didn't divide us. We, you know, we all got on. We all pulled in the same direction. I campaigned regularly to, to get them into to, to parliament and and to get a, a good number of local uh, councillors in as well. So it was all part of the kind of family. The Labour party had its different wings, its eccentrics, its people with different views, and that was kind of how it was. And um, you know, they were they were nice. They were nice days. And uh, interestingly, when I stood for uh, Redcar, I my in my um leaflet i actually had a supporting endorsement from both jeremy corbyn and david milliband so there you go <laughs> that's a <laughs> quite bringing te- both wings uh, yeah together. it tells you what broad church we we could be then
0: right so speaking of broad churches how did you feel when jeremy corbyn became nominated as the socialist campaign group's nominee
1: well, I think the interesting thing was, you know, like many people, I thought, well, I'll be surprised if he gets on the ballot um, to, to go out to members. Obviously, it was a new system we were trying for the first time. And traditionally, MPs had had a third of the weight of the votes. Trade unions and affiliates had, had a third of the weight of the votes and members had. And that was always what I think is very important is the sort of tripod of the party. I think, you know, you, members and activists are crucial. Trade unions and affiliates are crucial as part of our history in the wider movement. But MPs have a really important role because, you know, and this is one of the things that I've always tried to defend ever since, particularly since um, 2016 and the, the, the no confidence motion in Jeremy. MPs really are what I'd call sort of canaries in the mind. We are out in the communities. Many of us, like me, would be out every single Saturday listening to people on the doors. And so, for me, if MPs think... And they know, of course, they know their colleagues well from being in Parliament. We see who performs well in the chamber, who's collegiate, who works well in committees, who has interesting views and advice, who supports colleagues. So we have quite a good inside track. So I've always felt the role of MPs in choosing a party leader is very very important and has unfortunately been sort of undermined you know of course I, I totally understand members are important, they're the lifeblood of our party but there's been this sense of members versus MPs in the last few years that I think has been really unhealthy and actually undermined the importance of MPs roles and so going back to that point about nominations, again I think a lot of MPs didn't really take their roles seriously and good friends of mine, like uh, Neil Coyle and Joe Cox at the time, subsequently regretted nominating Jeremy. But there was a big move. Well, again, we were sort of complacent. Broadchurch, let's get everyone on the ballot, you know, won't do any harm. People like Sadiq had, I think, were, you know, about to get the nominations for London Mayor. Everybody wanted to keep members happy. And I don't think people really could foresee what would happen because they kind of just assumed, again, perhaps complacently, that, you know, that, well, the the, the sort of, People will choose a sensible candidate. People will, you know, there'll be an Andy Burnham or an Evette Cooper, and we'll sort of muddle through. And um, and I think, yeah, it was going back to that. That was a that was obviously a moment in history um, where I think a lot of MPs would change their mind if they had if they could if they had a time machine.
0: So the ground started shifting, and Jeremy Corbyn became the front runner by some clear margin. And then obviously he won the election. Talk me through those uh, those moments.
1: Oh yeah, I and mean, it was interesting to watch because I was out at some of the hustings um, supporting Andy Burnham and, and helping him with his campaign. And you could see it; you could see that kind of sense of momentum building. Um, you know, with a small M as it was then, you could you you could get a kind of sense of of the groundswell. And again, you know, I think that was important. And you know, people kind of portray me as a you know hostile to to what came after and all of that, but. You know, there was no doubt that actually we did need, you know, a big breath of fresh air to, to some extent. We needed some excitement. We needed to feel passionate about our politics again. And I don't know whether it was a reflection on kind of the PLP or on the candidates that came forward or a sort of tiredness of kind of where we had been as, the, as a kind of, uh, you know, left of centre, progressive social democratic party. Um, but I think, you know, that... Jeremy's kind of, you know, had, did have a very different um, thing. It felt like people could relax from the discipline that they would felt they had to have to get into government. There was like a sort of release, a loosening of the belt, and everyone could indulge on the things that they cared passionately about without perhaps thinking about the responsibility of of, of getting into government. Um, and yeah, and I think you know there was sort of there was obviously a lot of shock in the PLP at the time. A lot of people who sort of knew, you know, Jeremy. But again, I mean, I was probably in that point. Well, let's make the best of it. Um, you know, he, he, members have chosen him. Let's all kind of pull together. I took a, a role, I was very honoured to be asked, as a new MP, um, then as a, a, as a shadow minister on, on the Charities Bill. And there was a sense of, well, as long as you know Jeremy will work across the, um, the wings of the party, we can pull together and, and perhaps it's time to have fresh debates and all that. And a lot of us were relatively open-minded. And I, I think the turning point for me, um, I remember it very clearly, was... Uh, there was a document leaked that was one of these silly charts that the left and you know, and I've learnt a lot. I didn't know much about the sort of history of, you know, the left or fighting militant I'd you know, I'd only been a party member under a new Labour, I'd only voted for the first time in nineteen ninety seven. So I hadn't faced those battles before or, or, or spent time sort of studying them. But you know, this idea of kind of lists and enemies within and kind of putting people in pigeonholes and boxes is one of the sort of traits that I've seen in the last few years. And so there was a leaked document that had um, what do they call us, core group, core group hostile, core group negative, and all of this. And I was so shocked because that was kind of the first time I was in UMP. You know, I was t- at that point totally involved in trying to sort out the kind of steelworks that had gone under in my constituency and trying to play a role as a shadow minister. And I, put, and I, and I was down in a core group hostile. And I thought, well, I know I have a kind of different... Uh, views and things from Jeremy, but it was the first time where i got a sense and and that instantly for me made me kind of withdraw get suspicious get skeptical think well is this some kind of battle that we now have to fight and that was very that was hard and i just think you know increasingly you know as as time went on that got harder but obviously it was brexit for me and for many that i think was was the turning point in that um and obviously what came after
0: Was there something that Corbynism got right? Was there something that the early movement tapped into that other figures in the PLP might have uh, overlooked? And what did that mean for the prospective future of the party?
1: I think the anti-austerity stuff was absolutely critical and absolutely right. And I I remember um, when Harriet Harman was acting uh, leader, there was the huge issue around the welfare bill. And I remember so clearly a meeting that we had as new intake MPs. Harriet very kindly invited us all in to have our say. And we went round the room and gave our views, and many like me, who represented a high number of people with uh you know who who were on welfare who were going to be hit very hard by what was in the bill, were very unhappy with it, wanted to oppose it, could not understand when we'd seen on the sunday uh Politics show programmes that we were going to abstain on this. Couldn't understand it. Couldn't believe it. It's not what we'd campaigned on. You know, myself for three years, I'd been the candidate in Redcar, listening to people on the doorstep, hammered by things like bedroom tax. For me, it was inconceivable that we could oppose the uh, that we could abstain on the welfare bill. So we had this meeting that I remember very vividly with Harriet. Many of us almost in tears. Like, we, we, we can't do this. Um, but you know, the, the whip was the whip, and I and, and I had that a view at that time. Well. I Remember on the train coming down on the Monday morning, agonising. Knowing that the debate was that day, saying oh, I've I've got to break the whip. I've got to I've got to vote against it. And then as I got back into Parliament, I thought, God, well, look, I'm only a few months in. You know, I thought I'd go through my whole career without breaking the whip. Um, you know, I don't want to abandon other colleagues who are trying to do the right thing and keep the party together. Harriet, is, bless her, is acting leader. I don't want to undermine her. I don't want to just go out and be sort of, you know, waving my own flag and polishing my own halo at the cost of colleagues. We have to stick together. It's only second reading. You know, I'll I'll go with it. And and, and the backlash that came from that, you know, I knew it was, wasn't the right place to be. But that, again, for me, I think was a real sign, not only that I think, you know, we'd, we'd lost our way a bit as a party but also that the vitriol that was sent the way of mps who did obey the whip and did abstain who who themselves were agonizing and trying to do the right thing and then the anger with those who had cut loose and voted against it and who were able to sort of go on twitter oh you know and and polish their hair is that again it that that I remember that setting quite a wedge in my kind of intake uh, between people and how if and so, I think you know there's there's no doubt that we were in the wrong place on that and whether or not it would have taken Corbynism or something else to have got us in that place I don't you know I don't know but there's a def- there was a definite sense that we had got that wrong and we I think we reacted to try and to try and see it from the view of people like Harriet Harman because that's the others who had taken that decision we just lost another election, you know, the second election, the Tories had run very heavily on kind of welfare. And there was a sense of, well, are we going to have any credibility with the public if we if we, if we don't do this? And it was a real one of, of kind of challenging what is responsible with what we want. But, I, but you know, I genuinely feel and I felt then that the party was in the wrong place in it. And it was, it was just one of those... It was one of those crucial moments, I think, where the party was at a sort of crossroads, and I don't know whether it, you know, that was that was something I think that Corbynism tapped into, um, that we just that the, the party just didn't get right, and it wasn't speaking with its heart, it was speaking with its head, and was was was. Seeing kind of getting into power, yes, that is obviously our number one goal, but it put that above everything, above trying to win the argument about why we were right. And, you know, I, I don't know, you can, you can agonise it over it a hundred times, but for me, I think those were, you can clearly see the kind of step changes in where the party was, where the public perception was, where the PLP was, and what our kind of journey was to get to, to Corbynism.
0: So things started to change in a big way uh, during the Brexit campaign. Can you talk me through when the real rifts started showing between the way Corbyn was trying to lead the uh, direction of the party during that?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of remember kind of retrospectively the sort of um, various conversations, but there was definitely growing concern, growing worry. And I remember having a conversation myself with Tom Watson just a couple of days before the... Um, I was in his team at the time when I was... Uh, so, uh, or had been a, a shadow charities minister. Or Yeah, was was at the time. And I remember saying with Tom... I think we could lose this. I think we could lose it. But most people, that just wasn't the view. It wasn't perceived. But I've been, from the campaign I've been doing in my constituency, I was really concerned. The hostility on the doorstep had been huge. Um, the vitriol, the things that people were saying that I never thought I'd hear in you know 21st century Britain that I hadn't heard in normal general elections was quite shocking. There was something different about this. And I was just really, really concerned that I didn't see anything from the Labour Party that was an authentic... Uh, argument for the European Union, for our values, for being outward facing, for working with our nearest partners, with our neighbours, for cooperation and partnership. That just was not being articulated. We weren't going on platforms and and I, I was hearing my constituents say I want to vote against David Cameron um, and they just they didn't know where the Labour Party was on it and that that feeling, that concern, was just growing and building in me every day.
0: Why do you think Jeremy Corbyn sort of adopted this sort of hands-off position?
1: Well, I think we, you know, we only have to look at his kind of historical views on the European Union. He's a Eurosceptic. That was his position. And you know, to be fair to him, we, you know, we all criticise him for kind of being stubborn and not being electable. You know, I think he probably bit his lip in that campaign. Um, but for me, the telling point, and again, the bit where I really. Switched in terms of my view on him, thinking I can't put up with him as, as uh, you know, I can't cope with him as leader, this isn't right for the country. Was that um, last leg episode? I watched that in absolute horror, seeing him kind of step out this car in a fur coat and white tie and then go on and do a kind of jokey interview. This was just days before the referendum, giving the EU, I think it was seven and a half out of ten. And for me, the anger in me then, seeing the kind of application of responsibility, the lack of a serious message, the sort of self-indulgence of it, that was the point for me where enough was enough and I just, you know, and I could feel the, the, the referendum slipping away from us. And I was really angry that I just didn't see the sort of, you know, the the seriousness, the determination to win, the ability to wrestle with the arguments and win the arguments that I could feel us losing on the doors.
0: So it's interesting you said self-indulgent there as sort of the image that Corbyn and his supporters wanted to portray was of broadly of a kinder, gentler, more inclusive politics. Was that your experience dealing with the leadership in his office?
1: Um, I think, to be honest, that's I didn't have a huge amount to, to deal with I mean Jeremy's never been anything other than polite and courteous to me. You know, I've not I've not had to witness anything that I've heard from, you know, colleagues about sort of short temperedness or anything like that. He's he's been unfailingly polite to me, but Certainly, it's not. So, it wasn't so much Jeremy himself. It was the people around him. Like I said, the first indication I got of that was this, you know, chart, this spreadsheet where we were all put into categories of hostile. You know, I hadn't felt I was hostile. Jeremy had been my MP, my friend, and I was working in the shadow front bench. I hadn't done anything to undermine. There was this othering going on within the party that I had never experienced before, and that was an othering of the PLP, and othering of, you know, of, of of us if we took different positions to people. And of course, you know, stuff on social media was starting to really build at that point as well on twitter and yeah there's absolutely no question that they've begun this kind of really nasty sort of attacks on uh people with different opinions people say began around the welfare bill i got a huge amount over syria as well because i uh, voted for the raf to take action on isis in syria which again i would do if the vote came again tomorrow i would do exactly the same again and i think was absolutely right to do and you know we've had a failed strategy on on syria for the last however many years. That was, that was just one small uh, thing that I think that we could do to try and relieve some of the worst elements of what was going on in that country. And around that time, the backlash from that was absolutely horrendous. The emails, the kind of social media blitz, that was when I started to think, oh, this is... You know, it wasn't external, I wasn't getting that from my constituents. It was all from internally within the Labour Party. And, you know, I I think at the time, if I remember rightly, Jeremy had asked members to email their MPs to tell them what they... Although it was a free vote, to tell them what they thought about the action. And that felt to me like a sort of gearing up of, again, this members versus MPs divide, which was really unhealthy. For me, I, as I said, I've been a candidate for three years. I built a team. I, I got on really well with my members. We would won an election together to get a seat back off the Lib Dems. I had a great great relationship with my members. And suddenly there was starting to be this kind of uh, divide between MPs and, and the members that they campaigned with.
0: You are listening to Corbynism, the post-mortem. And this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at Media Masters Podcast, who produce fascinating one-to- interviews with some of the very biggest names in media. You can find them at mediamasters.fm. And now, back to the show. Corbynites um, often like to portray themselves as defenders of the Kurds of northern Syria. However, the one vote we had in Parliament as to whether we should intervene to save their lives from an oncoming ISIS genocide, um, they were opposed to it. And then, you know, suddenly, all of a sudden, they're still trying to portray themselves as, as their defenders when in reality, as you said, you, you stuck by your vote because had that decision not been taken, there might be no Kurds left in northern Ab- Syria at absolutely. all. Absolutely.
1: And I, you know, I've always tried to make my decisions on the basis of evidence rather than kind of ideology in, in Parliament. And the evidence was clear what ISIS were doing, you know, ravaging across Iraq and Syria. We were taking action in Iraq. For me, we had to take action in Syria. People's lives defended. And if you heard Hilary Benn's speech you know, in Parliament, you know, it was, it was a phenomenal and a very articulate view of, of our values, of Labour values. And again, the backlash... That he got from that, because how dare he articulate a left-wing uh, justification for intervention? It You know, it, it, poor Hillary got a horrendous time after that. Well,
0: I mean, it also it was also widely accepted as a sort of condemnation of Jeremy Corbyn's position, and he said it said it from the front bench, so people would would have perhaps correctly seen it as an attack on, on Jeremy. Now, whether they were morally right or ro- wrong is is irrelevant to that question. But talking about wider foreign policy issues. There were some other significant moments, not just Syria, Um, I remember obviously Jo Jo Cox was very passionate about um, uh, the white helmets and protecting Aleppo and she tried to push for RAF drops, silence from Jeremy. Um, We also have the Russian uh, poisoning uh, in in Salisbury Mm -hmm. and and Corbyn stood up in Parliament and said have we sent samples to Moscow to see what they think. So, yeah, I remember so, that
1: very, very clear. I mean, that was that was another example of what you know. For me, it just it seemed obvious. And I remember sitting on the back benches with my jaw hitting the floor at his response, and I was ashamed. Actually, I was ashamed on behalf of my my party and the proud history we we have. I was ashamed because I knew how this would look to my constituents, who you know. And I was I was ashamed that actually this is kind of evidence based. We knew what what you know. We, we we I trust the British government, not naively, but but you know, I trust us. <clears throat> excuse me to to do the right thing. And this idea that there's just constantly an anti-Western and kind of pro-Russian viewpoint. I felt the lack of patriotism from the front bench. And I knew how this would be perceived by my constituents. And I had to... I, I signed this... Uh, there was, a, uh, I think, an early-day motion uh, that went around, um, you know, quite clearly setting out what I felt, would you know, should be the, the correct position uh, on the Scripple incident. And I had to go to my GC that Friday night. And I had people, you know, really, really sort of shouting at me, having a go at me. And somebody said... Uh, Oh well, you know, we know what MI5 are like. They do this all the time. And I just felt God, I mean I'm in the social media kind of conspiracy world is is here in this room in my own CLP. And I was I was really quite shocked and that was where it, and again I felt the sort of the gearing up of kind of MPs versus members and the re- realization of where our membership was in terms of its views was very out of kilter with what I felt was kind of mainstream British views and, you know, and, and a sensible, pragmatic view on behalf of the defence of our country and, you know, British citizens. We forget that a British citizen died as a result of that incident. And, you know, we had a duty to to get to the bottom of this and to perceive it as what it was, an assault in our country and a huge issue of, of, of you know, diplomat, a huge diplomatic incident. And the idea that we were not you know responding and not defending our country not standing up for our values and just you know and we're, we're maligning our own um secret services our own special forces our own you know government i just i found it really shocking
0: so i think it was quite interesting i believe it was Owen Jones wrote an article saying uh, that it was inexplicable why corbyn took a dodgy position on that and and it lost you know faith with the electorate but it it doesn't seem inexplicable if you if you understand Seamus Milne's role in the party and how, and, you know, Jeremy Corbyn had a Privy Council meeting, so he'd seen the intelligence and he still went up and said, have we sent it to Russia? Do you think there's something about his worldview? And do you think that started seeping into, you know, the perception of the party. It,
1: hugely, hugely. And um, a person who said some really interesting stuff on this is, is Pat McFadden, and I think, for me, everything, the anti-Semitism, all of these issues seep into this concept of the world view. And that's what I think people, you know, people see kind of, you know, nice, Jeremy, the, the, the anti-austerity stuff, that's already positive. But what I also knew as, as, as a local uh, member, what came with Jeremy was his world view. I, I'd seen him, you know, quite rightly champion things like, you know, the Chagos Islands and, you know, stuff in Venezuela, and he's had a long-standing kind of view on these issues that and that came with him. That was never going to change, you know. His, the, the thing that people liked about him was that he had held on to his views for 33 years. But if you're holding on to views in the face of evidence, in the face of a responsibility that you have as leader of the Labour Party and a potential Prime Minister to defend your country and to and to and to win an election and to get Labour into government and to you know to, to defend your 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 population, this is the, it. Comes back to this thing of kind of self-indulgence that your worldview comes before what is right in the duty of the country. And I feel that Shames Milne, the people around him, the causes that he had always supported, There is this anti Western view. There is this kind of constant kind of apologising, you know, for for, for our role in history, this constant belief that we are always in the wrong, that we are always the forces of evil in the world um, against, you know, and and everybody else is an innocent victim. I don't think it's a realistic view of the world in 21st century Britain. And I think it's, you know, it's damaging and it's taken the party to a place which, yeah, has ultimately lost us, you know, this election with a hammering. But people can see when when they, the least they want in a prime minister is someone that they think is believes in their country will stand up for our values and will stand up for for our place in the world yes with humanity and with dignity and with human rights at the absolute forefront of what we do but not with this automatic assumption that we are always wrong and you know, that that is a that's a fundamental uh, starting point that i just think he brought with him
0: well i do i do think it's interesting that um you know, that Guardian column I just mentioned that brings up after the fact that the Russia incident damaged the party. However, at the time, Owen Jones and other columnists were going on the media and defending Jeremy's response, saying it's a justified balance response and it's all a smear and you've put Jeremy in a Russian hat, yada, yada, yada. Only after the fact to then realise, oh, actually maybe not standing up for the police force and the people of Salisbury who were endangered by this attack. Maybe that actually damaged the party. Yeah,
1: it, it hugely did. And, you know, it's very frustrating for those of us, you know, from within who had to fight constantly on social media, within our own parties, uh, to try and get our voices heard. And the thing is, you know, you, as an MP, you're wrestling all the time with your kind of responsibility to your constituents, to do what's right for your country, to do what's right for your party. But there was this thing all the time, you know, particularly after um, the, uh, if, you know, people will call it coup, I will simply call it emotion of no confidence, because that is what it was. Uh, in in 2016, after that, there were, it, everything was decided about you're undermining Jeremy, you're you're attacking Jeremy. Everything you do is to attack Jeremy. That was never our purpose. Our purpose was to try and correct the position because what was coming from the front bench was so often. Universally wrong, factually, morally wrong, um, and leading us to a path that was going to was putting us completely out of kilter with the British public, and leading us lower and lower in their eyes in terms of a credible party to, to defend our national security and our public interest. And so it was it was a constant wrestle as an MP as to how much do you stand up and you speak out. Are you just gonna end up getting deselected and then you've wasted your time and you've not made any impact anyway? Do you keep your head down and try and stay in and fight and hope that whatever comes next, um, you know, you can be part of the rebuilding? You know, if we hadn't had this election that we've just had, you know, we don't. Jeremy would still have been leader of the Labour Party. We could have another, you know, three years till the next election. We would have had these constant battles ourselves as backbenchers between doing what we believe to be right, which was our values, what was right in the national interest and the public interest, what we believe was right to try and show people that there was a Labour Party that still believed uh, in in putting the national interest first, but also not wanting to undermine and be seen to attack the party because we all know, you you know, divided parties don't win, and it was just giving people ammunition to us all the time to say, you're undermining Jeremy, Jeremy will never win an election because he's being stabbed in the back by the PLP. That wasn't our... You know... I had no interest in doing that. Why I had an interest in doing was setting out to my constituents the reasons why I voted for Syria, for example, the reasons you know why uh, you know what w- what we were saying from the front bench was wrong.
0: Do you think there was a disingenuousness in his position as well? Like he would take um, to the stage and he would say that of course I would support military action. You know, if the United Nations were for it, that's why I'm opposing it in Syria. But the United Nations did vote. The United Nations Security Council did vote to intervene in Libya. Now, had Jeremy Corbyn had been prime minister then, he would have had a veto on the United Nations Security Council, which means the entire world wouldn't have intervened in Libya, and Libya would still be ruled by Colonel Gaddafi today. So do you think there was a disingenuous in, in, in which you know he wouldn't acknowledge that the UN Security Council was hindered by a Russian veto on Syria, but it's something he can understand that that it's hindered by an American veto on Israel-Palestine. Yeah. So
1: yeah, there's, there was definitely that that sort of dichotomy, hypocrisy, whatever you want to call it, there to the to the view to the UN. And, and I generally don't think, you know, people often ask Jeremy, you know, would under what circumstances would he consider military action and so on. And he, you know, I, I never heard from him anything that made me believe. At what's when he would defend the national interest? You know, his whole background was stop the war. You know, they—they they are constant. I've never seen them. Spot you know. Some. Exactly. When do you see them talking about what's happening in Syria? When do you see them, you know, standing up for the Kurds, for other victims around the world? They have their own worldview, which is that the West is bad, and everything follows from that. And, and, and that was where I felt Jeremy had come from. He said he was not a pacifist, but I cannot see the circumstances under which he would have uh, supported any military intervention uh, in, in, in conflict around the world. And I think that's, you know, we just can't start from that that starting point. You know, it is no one ever wants war, and and and. and Anyone that was ever ever supported any action um, was perceived in, uh, as a warmonger, as a neoliberal, as somebody who was you know out there seeking blood. It's always the last resort. No one ever wants it. But the, but the reality is, you know, we live in a difficult world, and military intervention sometimes is necessary. For me, I never saw a situation which he, I believed he would put British interests first and consider the the, the moral reasons for military intervention. I, ne- I never saw anything in any speech or any. Uh, article or anything that gave me reason to suggest he would ever uh, support action or interve- intervention and the reality is in the world unfortunately you know w- sometimes we cannot be a bystander sometimes there are people who need our help and our support around the world and as long as it's done with human rights at the forefront then you know and, and, and with you know support from the un support from from you know partners in the region then it's vital but the point was i never saw jeremy uh, uh, willing to acknowledge that britain had a role of military intervention in the world
0: the anti-Semitism crisis was obviously something that had a, a lasting impact on the legacy of Corbynism. Can you talk me through, sort of just broadly speaking, your your experience of the problem?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, that is for me that the biggest issue. And um, you know, I've never said this publicly before, but I I really wrestled with my own membership of the Labour Party and my own role as a Labour MP during this situation because I felt I was absolutely. I mean, heartbroken doesn't even come close. I felt physically sick. Um, at the stuff i was seeing online at the stuff i was seeing for my colleagues um having to endure luciana ruth margaret hodge um and i was questioning whether i could be part of a party that was allowing this to happen within its ranks that i knew was turning a blind eye internally to it um and that more than that that felt actually this was a place for people with those views to be part of um and it it That, for me, was utterly heartbreaking and sickening. And I felt, as an MP, am I legitimising this? Am I being the outward acceptable face for a party that is allowing this to happen? Um, You know, when when members of the Jewish community are saying to me and sending me direct messages saying, we will leave this country if, um, if he becomes Prime Minister, that is, you know, when you've got, you know, the idea of a rally outside Parliament, the chief rabbi's intervention... I mean, all these things are just inconceivable, and it was mortifying. And, you know, there were many, many members of the PLP who just... We just didn't know what to do, because it felt like the more we spoke up, the more our voices were diminished, the more it was, oh, you would say that, you always say that, you're just the Labour Friends of Israel, you're just using this to attack Jeremy, you know, this is just another reason for you to stab him in the back. And it felt like... You know, we have, some of us continue to try and speak up because at least we felt we had to show people that we got it and we cared. Silence would have been worse. But it got to the point, certainly in the last sort of six months before the election, where I almost didn't... Every time there was another incident, I almost didn't want to go on Twitter to say, oh, this is horrendous, you know... Uh, enough is enough blah, blah blah because the words felt increasingly meaningless no one felt we were ever going to do anything we felt impotent they knew you know change uk had left you know the guys had, had left the party and failed they knew that we had our, our threats of leaving the party were meaningless they wouldn't have cared and, and, and in fact they'd have rejoiced if we had stood down because they'd have just replaced us with a momentum candidate you know someone who had Similar views, and we wouldn't have been able to have any impact then. And it was this constant tussle between: can we try and stay in and fight and change things from the inside? But then, how do we show people on the outside that we're doing anything? Because nobody could see us do anything. They just—we all felt complicit. For, for people like Ruth, how they how they stood and endured it. Um, and, you know, Ruth raised it every week with Jeremy. When he turned up, I understand he only turned up to about one in four parliamentary committees that Tony didn't miss a single one of, uh, well, even when he was Prime Minister. Um, but Ruth raised it every week in parliamentary committee. It was raised every Monday night that I was at the PLP. Um, we raised it and raised it and raised it. And it didn't matter how... It, the more shocking cases that we disclosed, you know, the complaints all we got was warm words and it was and it became as if this was just an organizational issue oh well we just need to have better processes in place to deal with these people it wasn't an organizational issue this was a values issue and it comes back to what we've just been talking about about the view of the world and I, and i'm afraid to say that you know what came with jeremy and you know some of the kind of extremes of the sort of you know anti-capitalism conspiracy theory stuff the, the, the you know came with some of the worst tropes that i didn't expect to see again in, in, in this century. Um, and that was absolutely heartbreaking. And and the frustration that what people tried to just say, well, this is just, you know, you, you're not allowed to be pro Palestine anymore, the party's just trying to shut down discussion on Israel and Palestine. You know, that's just fundamentally not the case. When what we were seeing was just pure anti Semitism. It had nothing to do with Israel, but it had everything to do with people trying to blame the Jewish community for what was happening in Israel, make the Jewish community justify what was happening in Israel. Um, and talk about global conspiracies, media conspiracies, lobbying, influence—who's in the pay of who? This stuff was disgusting, and took me back to literature I saw at school, you know, regarding the, the build-up to the Second World War. And it was utterly heartbreaking to see it in an anti-racist party. And but say the struggle was always: what do we do? Do we leave? Do we walk away? How do we show our disgust? We felt utterly impotent, um, and it was very, very. Worse than impotent, we felt like we were legitimising and putting an acceptable face on some really horrible uh, an evil, frankly.
0: Touching upon both foreign policy and anti-Semitism, Chris Williamson, who was an MP for Labour, he was subsequently suspended from the party over his role in the anti-Semitism problem. He also had uh, celebrated the work of uh, a conspiracy theorist who had called Joe Cox an al-Qaeda advocate, how did you feel, having been friends with Joe, to, to see Chris openly sort of flouting, that sort of thing?
1: I felt physically sick, and that was, I wrote a letter to Jenny Formby um, when there was a discussion about whether Chris should or shouldn't be kicked out of the party, and that was one of a list of, I think, about 10 points I put in that letter to say why he should be expelled. It was, it was, I was beyond angry. Um, I mean, you know, there was, obviously I didn't even speak to him in Parliament I have anything to do with him, but just seeing him walking around, You know, <laughs> having said that about, a dear friend that we lost, who, who you know, whose boots he wasn't fit to lace, um, who you know had a fabulous grasp of what was going on and cared passionately about the humanitarian crisis happening in Syria. Spoke up bravely about you know issues and we did such a great job advocating for the white helmets. It just it was. It, we were angry. There were so many of us that were absolutely angry. But it felt like, I mean, looking back now, it was just the whole era was just things that were just you, you couldn't believe things could get any worse. You couldn't believe people could be any more hurtful. You couldn't believe that anything more outrageous could happen, and it just kept happening. And it was just it was just the the exhaust, exhausting kind of constantness of this ugliness, this horror, and that you just didn't recognise in your party, and that somebody like this could be an MP. It was who could say those things or support somebody that said those things. It was just, you know, it was it was just horrific.
0: You are listening to Corbynism, the post-mortem. And this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at Media Masters Podcast, who produce fascinating one-to-one interviews with some of the very biggest names in media. You can find them at mediamasters.fm. And now, back to the show. Some of the stuff we've discussed came after this incident, but I'm wondering, you know... The anti-Semitism, the foreign policy stuff, Jeremy Corbyn's past and Brexit, it all started to build up until eventually, as you brought up earlier, there was a vote of no confidence. Can you talk me through that episode and sort of the lessons the PLP learned from it and what it meant after losing?
1: Well, I think, um, I mean, there was such an overwhelming uh, horror at the referendum result. You know, that was on the Thursday. And of course, Joe had only died or been killed a couple of days before. We were in huge amount of shock grief, anger, and there was just a sense of, you know, we've utterly failed, Jeremy has utterly failed this is seismic for our party Um, David Cameron had stepped down and it was you know, I know for so many of us, it was like, right, this this is it now. It's gone too far. We can't let this little experiment happen anymore. The damage now is affecting our country because of his failure in in the referendum. He has to go. That is it. And I don't. Th- I mean, there's all these things. You know, it's a huge conspiracy. This, something, the other. I think for so many of us, we've been getting there organically, and it was almost like dominoes. Once one went, we all went. I made my mind up. I think on the Sunday night, and that was it. You know, I've sent my letter first thing Monday morning, and people just kind of. It was. It, Next time, every time I looked at my phone, a colleague had gone, you know, on Twitter. Then another letter came through, and it was just everybody, you know, just felt this was it. And I think, you know, surely we felt the strength of our numbers. The strength of that feeling was to say, you know, to our party, to the members, to the public, this is not, this is not right. We've failed. This is not who we are. The leader has to go. He has to accept responsibility for this awful outcome that's going to have huge impact on, on our country and you know, this is time for a fresh start there'll be a fresh Conservative Prime Minister we need someone else to, to take over and get get the party back into a decent shape and and I remember thinking so clearly at the time. You know, eighty, eighty percent of MPs no confidence, Jeremy. Now, in what world, if you were, you know, if you were a football manager and eighty percent of the board or of your changing room no confidence, you if you were a teacher who lost eighty percent, a head teacher who lost eighty percent of your staff. In any other walk of life, you just, you just say, well, you know, no, I, I failed. I'll go. I'm sorry. I, I, I wasn't able to do it. I, you know, you'd step away. I'd be mortified, mortified, if you know that the, the, my if I got a no confidence motion like that from any team I led in any walk of life. And so the expectation was that he would go, and and he didn't. And more than that, then the idea that he got straight back on the ballot, he didn't have to go back through you know the process that we're going through now with getting a certain amount of nominations because there's no way you know even even those who didn't vote against Jeremy because they personally they didn't feel they could or they didn't want to be seen as you know having a coup or whatever or they're worried about their members which a lot of them were you know all those reasons why the 20% didn't and some believed in the project obviously as well but for, for many of them they would still not have nominated him you know when it, when it came back to it so the idea that he just got a free pass to go back out to the membership a membership which had predominantly joined to support him in 2015 it was just outrageous. And poor, you know, both Angela Regal and Owen Smith, very, very brave, put themselves on the line, got absolutely destroyed. You know, Angela bricked through a window. Owen's, you know, political career, you know, was over, sadly, from from, from that point onwards. You know, it, it, the personal toll they, to, they took was absolutely huge for daring to put themselves forward as, as a potential leader of the Labour Party in a time of national crisis. I think it's it's very, very sad.
0: think part of the issue as well is that the leadership candidates maybe weren't as strong as they are now and had some of the stronger voices from the party put themselves forward we might be in a different situation
1: today. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think if you know perhaps Yvette or Hilary Ben had come forward, we might have been in a different situation. But it was really hard because nobody wanted to be seen to be the one wielding the knife. Um, people knew that the party was still where the party was and it was going to be very difficult to, to win an election against Jeremy. So, no, I agree. You know, I, 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 As I said, Owen and Angela were very, very brave. They weren't necessarily the best candidates. They would have been good, both of them good candidates and, you know, would have perhaps stopped The rot that we've seen of the last um, you know the two years sort of since then but um, yeah I think I think you know the reality was people call it a coup it wasn't a coup because we didn't plan it you know it's clear we didn't plan it because you know we didn't have the candidates in place and all of that it it was very difficult for all of us to do things like that I never imagined in my life that I would no confidence the leader of the Labour Party and resign from the front bench You know, I I was very proud to do that job. I was only, I'd only been an MP a couple of years. I never imagined that I would do anything like that. So difficult and controversial and, and, you know, brutal. But that was how desperate we felt we had to take action and but of course it was then betrayed as this is the thing that kind of really frustrated me say it became the plp versus the members the plp you know jeremy was the members choice and the plp just did it to spite the members the plp are all just backstabbing blairites they all just did it to undermine jeremy you know there was no sense of many of us did this out of a sense of duty to our country out of a sense of duty to our party because we could see electorally you know and, and i put very clearly my resignation letter that i didn't think jeremy could win an election and that was a major factor for for me um you know we all agonized with this and did this for the the right reasons but the way it was portrayed and a very clever campaigning tool to ensure Jeremy won the next election was to say you know to call it the chicken coup to write us all off um and and then just you know to, to to kind of get Jeremy on the shoulders of members and parade him back into the job, regardless of the implications for the party's electorability, the the fact that, that we are a parliamentary party and therefore the, the leader of the party has to lead a parliamentary team, that we have to win seats in parliament. You know, we are not just a movement, a protest group, we are our clause one means we, we exist in parliament. So all of that was just sort of dismissed uh, and and not part of the debate and the PLP's voices were just Dismissed and written off, um, and I think we didn't stand up for ourselves enough. I think we all got, you know, were a bit overwhelmed by the backlash that came from that and the vitriol, um, and and I think it's it's continued to I think silence the PLP, put the PLP in fear of deselection, um, and 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 has stopped us doing our historic role and duty of kind of standing up, you know, and challenging the party sometimes when it, when, when we don't think we've got, we've got it right.
0: So it'd be unfair to talk about Corbynism, um, really, without talking about some of the people behind it. Uh, It's not just, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn, but Seamus Milne, Corey Murphy, Andrew Murray. Um, Can you talk about the direction the party went under, particularly with Seamus Milne, because he would brief the lobby, and sometimes he would brief the lobby, something that was very different to what... Jeremy Corbyn had just said so yeah. can you talk a bit about that and how and how his relationship with the PLP developed
1: yeah that was hugely frustrating I mean I can honestly tell you I've never exchanged one word with Seamus Mill and Carrie Murphy or was it Andrew Murray the other name that you mentioned yet yeah, I never had anything to, to, to do with them they operated kind of in the shadows in the in the lotto's office and there became this you know lotto became the kind of byword for these for these people and, and as you say my frustration everything from if we had a PLP meeting where Jeremy you know people would be telling Jeremy how difficult things were what a disaster how unhappy we were with with policy and so on and Seamus would be in those meetings and then we would go out and I'd leave the PLP meeting and he'd have a huddle of journalists with him telling them what happened at the PLP meeting and I thought well this is our meeting this is our one chance to speak to the leader of our party to tell him our concerns to tell him what we think is going wrong and there outside would be you know apparently Tony Blair never brought his staff into the PLP. It's our meeting, but there would always be hordes of people from Lotto's office in there, you know, writing notes, kind of on their phones saying who, which MP is saying what. And it, it just, it felt so... Kind of Stalinist, um, like when, when we all went out, many MPs went out to support the uh, rally from the Jewish community enough offers enough outside Parliament. There was someone taking the names of which MPs went out there. You know, this sort of stuff, All uh, people lived in fear of kind of being outed to their members, being seen as anti-Jeremy, um, as being seen as, you know, criticising the leader, because they know they'd have to go back to their GC meetings on a Friday night and get a backlash from Corbyn supporting members. And it definitely... There was a sort of rain you know they had this kind of rain of of sort of fear really after the the kind of two thousand and sixteen failed leadership thing that people just and they also there was also a sensible thing where people looked at polling and said every time we attack Jeremy, his support increases so we 've just got to stop attacking Jeremy, but that meant to the outside world people thought we'd all collectively lost our senses or that we all agreed with him on issues like the foreign policy, but the frustration in terms of there was very much a sense that you know, the, the, these guys were setting a lot of the policy, whether it was on Brexit. Um, you know, I spoke to, to, to people who... Been in kind of meetings with the leader on Brexit or on other issues, and they thought what they they'd got what they thought was agreement. You know, Key would go out and say one thing on TV, or Emily Thornby would go out and say one thing on TV, and then there's a line from the leader completely contradicting it two minutes later, and you just think, you know, that's just not a way to operate, it's not a way to function. And it was again, it was it was as if the parliamentary party and the shadow cabinet, shadow ministers were kind of irrelevant it was what jeremy said and that was what would go out to the members and you know that was the that was the line and that was of course what the media would 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 pick up on very frustrating
0: you touched upon brexit can you talk me through the sort of process of the party eventually shifting to a second referendum and also at the end of the election result brexit was blamed not only by everyone on the front bench as it were but jeremy corbyn himself in his concession speech essentially said Brexit polarised the country. Do you believe that?
1: Well, I mean, I've always said, firstly, I I don't believe we would have had Brexit if we hadn't had Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. If we'd have had someone articulating a kind of outward-facing, you know, cooperation, partnership, pro-European, pro-our kind of values, um, uh, we wouldn't have had that referendum in the first place. And then I think, you know, Keir and others worked very, very hard to keep the PLP together. Um, But I think sometimes actually you know that wasn't the right leadership isn't always just about keeping everybody happy sometimes leadership is getting to the right place and ultimately we failed ultimately we've got a hard brexit and five years of a tory government so nobody you know the, the brexit policy failed um and so you know you can whether that's sort of a, a collective thing for the shadow cabinet or for jeremy uh, to take responsibility for but the, the point for me was, you know, we, we know Jeremy's view on, you know, on, on the European Union. It's, it's historically there. He called for us, Article 50 to be triggered the day after the referendum. Um, and, and, you know, even for, for, for many like myself, I think most of us in the Labour Party, if, we'd have, if Theresa May had worked cross party and we'd got a reasonable consensus, even myself, have been very pro-people's vote. I think we would have kind of accepted some form of kind of constructive uh, Brexit at that point that kept us pretty much you know economically aligned and so on Um, but it was clear that that wasn't going to happen and for me you know those of us that came out fairly early for a second referendum it was clear once I saw I saw the statistics from government which was a Brexit was going to damage, particularly the North East, harder than anywhere else in the country. Areas like mine that were heavily dependent on industry and manufacturing could not support what Theresa May was doing. Therefore, the only way out of it, it was clear there was no Brexit that was not going to economically damage my constituents. So for me, a second referendum was the way out. It was the way out for everybody. It was the way out for the Labour Party. It was the way out for the Conservative Party, I, I thought. And my frustration was that I think many of us, if there had been proper leadership people like me would have accepted a position. We might have disagreed, we might have broken the whip, but at least there would have been leadership. What was such a disaster for the Labour Party was that we never really had a firm position, that we constantly flip-flopped, that Keir would get close to having a second referendum and then it would be briefed against that. that it was clear that the... Um, the membership wanted a second referendum but then we had that bizarre thing at party conference last year where it just became about loyalty to jeremy and i sat watching that debate on the telly seeing person after person including you know several unite officials coming onto the platform and saying you know this is a this is a referendum on jeremy support what support jeremy's position on brexit and and that was not what the membership wanted it was not what the you know the values of our party are and i just felt you know it was it was constantly being undermined any progress that we made towards a second referendum and i think you know if firstly we should never have had that election um we should never have conceded to boris johnson we were a week away the whips tell me very very clearly we had the numbers for the confirmatory ballot for the carl wilson amendment and that we could have done it. Boris had nowhere left to go. He was totally backed into a corner. He he, he couldn't, he couldn't get it through. Um, why on earth, why on earth did the Lib Dems, the SNP and then ultimately the Labour Party give him what he wanted in a Brexit election? It was absolutely the worst thing. I was always hoping that we wouldn't have to have an election until either Brexit was resolved or we had a new leader of the Labour Party. In the end we went out in the worst situation of both of those with Bre- without even a clear position on Brexit because we flip-flopped so massively and, um, and, and you know, with, with, in my view the worst leader of the Labour Party in its history and so it was a, it was cataclysmic, and representing a sixty seven percent leave seat. Of course, Brexit was an issue, but Brexit itself was so bound up with Corbyn. If I knocked on a door and there were five people who had moved away from us, Labour voters who were voting Tory, four out of five it was for Corbyn, and the fifth was for Brexit. That was the scale. You know, it was four to one Corbyn versus Brexit. But I knew, and I knew even before the election, that Brexit was an easy excuse for those who refused to confront the fact that their leader and their ideology were deeply, deeply unpopular in the country and um, that we were going to get absolutely hammered with him as leader.
0: So if you could talk to me about red car constituency and when you were on the doorstep talking to people, why did they dislike Jeremy? Um, You know, part of Jeremy Corbyn's worldview seems to be very anti-militarism and and whatever, and, and he's found himself... On the position on the side of people fighting against the british army at times where for families who are military families that's going to be very a difficult pill to swallow and and the kind of constant conversation about brexit and working class and it, it never really touched upon the the sort of world view perspective of why someone might not want to vote for Germany.
1: Yeah, Uh, I I think that's absolutely right. I mean, in Reku, we have a huge proportion of armed forces families and veterans. The Armed Forces Day in the Summer and Remembrance Day are two of the biggest events in the constituency. It attracts hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, And and recre is a kind of proud place. They're proud of their British identity. And that was, you know, obviously played a big role in the referendum result for Brexit. Being proud of this country, wanting to represent this country, wanting a leader who you think can represent you on the global stage, who will stand up for your interests, who you are proud of, who looks you know strong and able to, to uh, deal with Putin or who, Trump or whoever, that's what people wanted, plus a level of competence um, and and it's not it's not I'm not saying we have to kowtow, you know, to being right wing, far from it. We need to articulate our values in a way that are, you know, are outward facing global humanitarian values in a way that is patriotic. It is not right wing to sing the national anthem or you know or to or to watch the Queen's speech. These are not, you know, the, these are things that ordinary British people do. They're not the preserve of the right. And the moment we concede decent British patriotism, pride in our country, pride in what we stand for, pride in our values. Values and the determination to protect our people, to stand up for our people and look after our country, then we concede that to the right. And that's how you end up with Brexit. That's how you end up with Boris Johnson. That's how you end up with Trump. If the left wing doesn't have a decent, you know, even Rebecca Long-Bailey talked about progressive patriotism. I'm, I didn't see anything else underneath those two words, but they understood that the British public don't feel the Labour Party has the national interest at heart. And that's a huge, huge thing that we have to rebuild before any future election.
0: I want you to talk to me about Squawkbox and your legal case with them. Obviously, uh, the alternative pro-Corbynite media played a big role after his election as Labour leader and they, they sort of grew with the project. Can you talk to me about your experiences with them and, you know, what made you finally decide to sue? And then what followed with Len McCluskey and Unite?
1: Sure. I mean, I think... Th- there's the sort of the very separate point of the kind of case itself, which was a very clear libel that was made, that was factually wrong, um, on the Squawk Box blog, um, that was, you know, in, in my view, provided by Unite, and that was the specific action that I took on that. But it was part of a wider thing. Squawk Box has had a, it is clearly, you know, had moderate MPs in its sites. I've, I've seen a huge number of um, uh, articles it's written you know attacking moderate MPs for absolutely nothing for going to a concert with the tory my neighbouring mp tom blenkinsop i think they did five articles in a row in the days leading up to him quitting and i think that you know i'm sure that that probably had an effect on him deciding whether or not he he, he wanted to stand again they were out to get moderate members of the mp to of the PLP, sorry, to to create the grounds for our deselection, to slate us, to undermine us in the eyes of our members and his and you know in their audience, um, supported by I believe you know those in unite, those in Lotto, those at the top of the party who 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 wanted rid of us and wanted to reshape the PLP behind Jeremy and loyal to Jeremy and in a in a very narrow church. And so those of us who were not in that wing were perfectly you know in their sights, to be undermined, slandered, lied about, harassed, and, you know, there to be, there to be sort of driven out, really. And, um, you know, it all, you know, it was all, you could see the connection, you know, Lemon Kluski is often coming out and saying things like, you know, the the PLP should do this, that, and the other, the PLP are backstabbing, the PLP are, you know, he he talked about us in a very dismissive way, deliberately, I think, to carve that sort of them-and-us attitude between our members and uh, the PLP. And I think, you know, Squawk Box was there to just do exactly that. And I think the role of this... It's very corrosive, This the role of this media that's a kind of pravda, just to, you know, it's, it's not interested in facts... But that's just interested in creating a kind of mindset and a worldview to perpetuate an agenda. I just think it's very and to create division and within the party. I think it's just very very unhelpful, um, you know. And I'm glad I was able to, you know, to take my case. I'm, I'm glad we won it. Um, but it's not it's not going to stop this kind of. Um, a, a, hopefully, it will stop lying and people breaking the law. But it won't stop. I think the kind of constant undermining of people with a different view, and I think that's very sad.
0: So my last question to you, Anna, um, is about the future, the future of the party. What direction do you think it's going to go in? What direction do you think it needs to go in?
1: Um, how long have you got? Well, I think, you know, well, I'm, I'm glad we are where we are. I mean, the, ma- the main thing for me is that Corbyn has uh, stood down and we're in a place where we'll have some fresh blood. I, I'm, I'm really impressed with what I've seen from Jess Phillips, Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer, and I'd be happy with any of those three uh, leading... I think i'll probably i'll be giving my uh vote my first preference to jess phillips because i think i want to push the party um and i think that's someone has to kind of do that role you know as i say i think kia will be great and we'll probably win will be, a, will be a very kind of you know a good leader will take the party in the right direction but I want to kind of pull it further and faster and I want someone that's honest stands up and, and that frankly hasn't played a role in uh, Jeremy Corbyn's cabinet but has sought to challenge it and speak truth to power and you know that's why I'll be giving uh, Jess my first preference but I think Lisa Nandy's also been fantastic she represents you know Wigan is very similar to Redka many of the reasons that they both voted to leave are very similar Similar places that have felt left behind and people have felt disengaged and disenfranchised we have to win their support back so i think that's that's hugely important so yeah yeah just my first preference but you know lisa and Kier, i think very very impressive individuals um with good analysis and will you know do an admirable job and you know i think finally you know we can start to rebuild we can start to be constructive we can start to um you know have have a party that listens to the public and isn't blinkered by its ideology isn't um you know insisting that the public are wrong and that we are right and that you know the public just need to stop reading the mainstream media and come around to our view um you know this the, we've got to be realistic about where the British public are listen to them support them and you know and, and have a credible decent uh Labour opposition because I, the British public absolutely crying out for it and I think the reason why they were so angry with us last year and the result was so devastating was because, you know, they've been telling us, people have been telling me to get on the doorsteps go back down and get rid of Jeremy Corbyn and they're angry that they felt we were self-indulgent and we didn't present them with a credible alternative to Boris Johnson who they had no love for either so I think we're well on our way back now I think the future's bright we can rebuild it will be a slow process but we've got to be honest and stop just telling ourselves what we want to hear patting ourselves on the back talking to ourselves we've got to get back out and start representing the public again but I think you know the fight back starts here
0: thank you very much for joining me Anna it's been a pleasure to have you mine too thank Shortly after this episode was recorded, the only MP standing in the Labour leadership contest to not have served in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, Jess Phillips MP, announced the end of her campaign. The search for Labour's post-Corbyn future continues. Thank you so much for joining me for episode two of Corbynism the Postmortem. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash I hope to catch you all next week for Corbynism the Postmortem episode three. This episode was kindly sponsored by the wonderful Media Masters podcast, hosted by Paul Blanchard. The show is a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, and you can find out more at mediamasters.fm. Thanks for tuning in.